I actually love the vineyard. I'm, uh, it's sort of a home away from home because I'm not currently in a vineyard church. Um, I help lead a fresh expression of C of E. It's Anglican, you wouldn't know it. I was raised Baptist, who knows what's going on? But I'll tell you why I love the vineyard, and this is important because a bunch of you are going to be new to the vineyard if you're freshers and you've just shown up, found yourselves at home in this family and accidentally stumbled into an extraordinary movement of churches. What I love about the vineyard is firstly, um, if, if I could bottle some of your DNA that I see around the country, around the world, this movement um, has a consistent pursuit for worship, justice and mission. I see it all over you. I see it all over. Some of the most extraordinary leaders that I know are vineyard pastors. And uh, this commitment to loving the poor, to telling our friends about Jesus, and to uh, soaking in the presence of God, and from that place going out to do the stuff, I love that about your movement. So fresh as if you're new to that, um, grab hold of everything that you're learning in this family and run with it because uh, we need the vineyard. I love your commitment to church planting. I love this movement's commitment to raising the next generation. I love that everybody gets to play stuff that means none of us are spectators, but all of us are participators in the church of God. I love it. So although I'm not vineyard, I love you. You're very important. The rest of the church is cheering you on because we need your story. It sharpens up the rest of us. Give the vineyard a round of applause. So I'm sorry that I haven't been here for the whole journey, but again, I love that you've been looking at um, worship and justice as a theme. And actually, some of the most profound things I've learned about that have come from hanging around vineyard pastors. Um, the guy that used to lead uh, the vineyard in Canada, started it off actually, uh, Gary Best, he once said to me, having had uh, 12 days solid of renovating a house where they put their savings into it and the builder had taken their savings, walked off site, and so Gary, with his, more of his own money and borrowing other people's, had to renovate this house for the homeless on his own because they'd been messed about and stolen from by a builder. Gary said to me, Miriam, this nearly broke me, but the thing is the Lord said, love the poor. He didn't say it wouldn't be hard, he just said, love the poor. So I'm just gonna show up and that's what I'm called to do. And I thought, man, that's, that's incredibly challenging, but that taught me something, and that's in your DNA. And another extraordinary leader who now leads Vineyard Canada, a guy called David Roos, he, he has on his arm tattooed, consider the poor. And his Wi-Fi code in his house, the password is consider the poor because David cannot separate his life of worship with a life of justice and a life of serving the poor. So this is in your DNA, this is in your movement. I wasn't surprised when I was asked to speak on this, but I've learned a lot from you guys. But I'll also share some stuff that I've been thinking about when it comes to this stuff. Because if truth be told, um, I've been raised a Christian, and so my understanding of worship can be a little bit tainted by the fact that I've always been part of church community and always followed Jesus. And so it's almost not that fresh to me or cutting edge, it's just part of what we do. But I can also very quickly box it and stereotype it in. Now, the other night I was uh, putting my godson to bed and he always likes uh, to have a, a song before he goes to sleep. And um, a little bit like Christian karaoke, he, uh, or a Christian jukebox, he, he requests things, right? So annoyingly, he just had a harvest assembly. So he was all about harvest. And uh, that was really irritating, because I, I mean, we just don't sing about harvest apart from in primary school. So I'm like wheeling out any classics I can remember from like a C of E primary school back in the day. And um, autumn days when the grass is, I'm like trying, I'm trying, right? And Morgs isn't that impressed by it. So then Morgan says, um, can you sing me one that's from G2 that mummy and daddy haven't taught me? G2's my church. And I'm like, well, 
I'm, I'm struggling here, but Morgan, we'd just been reading about wildlife because he was into facts at the moment. So we were reading about Africa and facts. And so I thought, oh, I know what I'll love, Lion and the Lamb, big time. So then I start singing, our God is a lion. I'm making up the actions as I go, just trying to make it a kid's song. I just did the chorus, so I thought, you know, you should have gone to bed like 10 minutes ago, so come on, Morgzies. Anyway, I finished the chorus, I've really gone for it. I'm worshipping with him, I'm singing it out, and then at the end, all he has to say is, is that it, bit short. <laughs> I'm like, you're five, go to bed. It's a school night. How do we box in worship? How do we see worship? Because the thing is, I know the theology of it is that we live a lifestyle of in, in worship to God, that we're poured out like a drink offering, that our life is a song of praise to him. But realistically, if I think about being a good worshiper, it's basically stand up, arms up, sing up. And having been raised in church, when I think worship, I just can't help but go for the stereotype of now we're going into a time of worship and that's somehow relating to music and song and if you're really into it, your eyes are closed and your arms are in the air. And that's a, that's a bit of a theology crisis and it's a bit of a creativity crisis if that is the pinnacle of what it means to be a worshipper. The fact of the matter is, I get very easily distracted, so I'm, I therefore have discounted myself from being any good at worship or being called to be a worshipper, even though that's really bad theology, because at the end of the day, my arms get tired, or um, I get distracted by whoever's attempting to sing next to me, or um, I'm then accidentally making up rhythms in my head, and then I've kind of made up my own words, and I suddenly realise I'm just off on a tangent, and Ed Sheeran's gone into the mix, and we don't know what's going on, you know what I mean? Like, what a nightmare. Like, I'm not a good worshipper if that's what worship is. To be honest, most distracted I've ever been in worship. Bit of an aside, but quite an amusing one. One Christmas service, I'm sat in my tiny church where I grew up. It's me, uh, my mum and my sister. I'd love to tell you I was a teenager when this happened because it would make me come off better. I'm definitely in my 20s at this point. It wasn't that long ago, right? I'm sat in church and there's this one window to the left of where the band and the preacher is. Um, just clear glass window. And it looks out onto the neighbouring house because it's a little church in a kind of residential area. The neighbouring house has a window as well that exactly faces our church window. But that house window is frosted glass. Now, what could that mean? What room in the house would have frosted glass? So our church faces this person's bathroom, right? And it is Christmas morning. And carols, I find difficult at the best of time to always enter the presence of God for a carol. Um, particularly some of the words are just rubbish. But anyway, some of them are cracking. We're, we're trying to worship Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, on Christmas morning, and then our neighbour enters the bathroom. And I can confirm, even though it's frosted glass, he's a 40-something-year-old man. And that window is directly in the shower. And so we're standing and singing, and my mum is a head teacher, so very sensible. Um, Esther and I, my sister, like teenage girls, began to giggle and couldn't stop as we watched this bloke have a very prolonged Christmas morning shower <laughs> in not-so-frosted glass as it happened. The, the kicker was when that carol of <laughs> we were gone. I couldn't hold the long note. I was, I'm, I'm literally streaming. But you know when laughing is painful because you can't laugh, you're not supposed to laugh. So you're like actually dying. You're like, you are ripping your insides apart because you're trying not to go. <laughs> but I'm just weeping and it wasn't the Holy Spirit. I utterly lost it. <laughs> utterly lost it. If that is what worship is, I'm very easily distracted and I'm not very good at it. 
Oh dear. If that's worship, I'm a failed worshiper. But the thing is the same thing we can do with justice. Just like I box worship into being, if you're a worshiper, really that's stand up, sing up, arms up. With justice, being a person of justice, honestly, if I, truth be told, I box that in as well. I have a creativity and theology crisis on justice as well. Because realistically, where does my mind go when I think Christians, we're supposed to be people of justice? Well, I think I'll outsource it. So I'll set up a standing order to something that does justice. I think of organizations rather than churches. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I immediately put it somewhere else. I think, yeah, okay, so maybe we'll do an event. Maybe we'll do a campaign. Um, I can do something, then I've ticked my justice box, or I'll go and ask the vegetarian in church, who's the only one really ethically living amongst us, <laughs> what should we do about justice? <laughs> and then feel guilty and try and eat less meat, right? So, again, to be a justice people, I've suddenly outsourced it. I've boxed worship into a musical box. I've boxed justice into an outsourced social action box that occurs from time to time. And rather than actually making eye contact with a homeless person on the street, finding out their name and offering to pray with them, rather than living a life that when you check my bank balance, it matches up to what I preach, rather than, you know what I mean? Like letting it overflow into every area of our lives so we actually stand up for the person that's getting bullied. We don't just, we actually notice and start to pray, Lord, who in our midst is uh, possibly actually trafficked because for most of our cities, that is a reality now, rather than outsource it and hope someone else does it and then turn a blind eye rather than find out how do I be aware? Holy Spirit, what are you doing on my street? My friend Freya who's down there, uh, we used to street, um, prayer walk the streets of York. York is not known for human trafficking, but we just, when we start hearing about what was going on, we thought if we were justice people, then it's, and this is our patch, and this is on our watch, then the least we can do is begin to walk and pray, particularly the areas of town that are known for um, brothels and are known particularly with students engaging with that. We just started to walk the streets and areas. It also makes us pay attention when, therefore, years later, the police start uncovering things just down the road from us, and we think, whoa, I wonder whether prayer makes a difference or not. I wonder whether those miles walked and those prayers prayed might have made a difference because we're a justice people. We didn't just outsource it to someone else for a moment. What does it look like to be a justice person? Now, I've got a bit of a random passage to bring to you because this isn't a passage about worship or justice, not overtly. Um, but it really helps me when I think about how do I bring this home? How do I be a living, breathing temple of the Holy Spirit in such a way that the way I walk is pouring out my worship to Jesus with my eyes fixed on him and being so conscious of the justice of God that of course I stand up for the oppressed and the poor and the suffering because it is in his nature and therefore he lives in me so it must be in mine. So if you've got your Bibles with you uh, or on your phones, can you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter four? And we're gonna have a look at that passage together. So this is uh, our mate Paul. He's a hero of the New Testament, did a whole bunch of church planting and then supporting of those churches. So he's writing to the church in Corinth but it will have also gone to the surrounding areas, so he's aware of that. And um, although it was a specific, uh, to a specific community, it's one of those, as with all scripture, it's God-breathed, but pay attention to what he says because it gives us a really, um, 
a really powerful picture of how Paul understood walking out the promise of God. 2 Corinthians 4, and I'm starting at verse 5. This is quite a long chunk, but um, it's remarkable. This is what he says. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly, we are wasting away. Yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Therefore, we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. That is a preach in itself. I need not say anything, but if you took a note of that scripture and went home and read it to yourself again, spoke it back into your soul, that can have a transformative effect on the way that you walk, on the way that you worship, on the way that you love other people and the way that you see the power of God in you. I know this because this scripture transformed my life and I've never heard it preached on. This became like an anchor, like a touchstone, a point of reference uh, and a steadying point for me uh, when mum and dad broke up and got a divorce whilst I was at university. This became a real go-to for me and a place of finding hope and understanding how I could stand and worship, how I could walk with hope, how I could love and serve people that were broken and oppressed even though I myself felt broken and let down. This passage anchored me. Same thing happened again. I used it as my touchstone and my anchoring when my, one of my best friends got cancer. We had a year's worth of journey through that. Super hard, as many of you will know and have journeyed with friends and family. And again, I came back to these words of Paul and this idea of still carrying treasure, even though I felt like a really broken and battered jar of clay. But this causes me to fix my eyes on Jesus. It lifts my perspective to the eternal and it helps me live a life that is a poured out sacrifice of worship to God 
so conscious of others that suffer around me, even in the midst of storms. So if all you take away from tonight is that passage to go and sit in for yourself, please do that, 2 Corinthians 4. What I love about this, what I want us to pay attention to, a few things that helps us, is that the kind of worship Paul describes here isn't stand up, sing up, arms up. However, the effect of understanding this passage means that actually you kind of can't help but declare the glory of God. I also love that this passage doesn't put Christians in the best seat in the house. What I think can happen with justice and social action is that we accidentally end up coming across as the strong and sorted ones that need to go and help the ones that aren't sorted to do something to or for somebody else. Whereas Paul puts us firmly in the place of the walking wounded here. He knows that as a, being a Christian and carrying this treasure might also mean you're walking with a limp. Because following Jesus guarantees suffering. Following Jesus guarantees trouble. And yet somehow Paul has found this secret of living out as a sacrifice of worship and praise and glory, even despite his circumstances. And I guess this is what I want to get to tonight with us a lot, because I get a bit sick of people quitting faith in their late 20s, early 30s, or even at uni, because it got hard. And I wonder, what did you think you were signing up for? Like when you look at the teachings of Jesus, he couldn't be clearer that you're signing up to take up your means of death and shame, to pick up your cross and follow him. He makes it super clear before he leaves the earth that in this world we will have trouble, but take heart, have courage, because I have overcome the world. Jesus himself is the suffering king, the suffering king. And actually, we start to get a real refining around what worship means, what justice means, when you are the victim of injustice and you don't feel like worshiping. I would love us to be a generation that knew what we signed up for and we signed up for the cost as well as the glamorous bits of the call. We signed up to life but we knew that meant death. I'd love it if we carried on into our 30s and there were more of us because not only did we take the whole gospel seriously but then we told our mates. So we doubled the room, not with gift wrapping the gospel, but with telling them the whole truth about how this is life, true life, whole life, real life, the only life, but it will also cost you your life, your entitlement, your sense of being sorted and um, helping out other people. No, actually we're in weakness and God is strong. The suffering king and we're his servants. Do you see how this chart starts to perspective shift on worship and justice? Because automatically this passage doesn't leave the Christians in the strongest seat in the house. In fact, we're the victims of injustice and yet we're called to pour ourselves out for others. So a few things I wanna highlight. Firstly, just right at the start, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Have you seen the list that Paul uh, speaks about what they're going through right now? hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, and carrying death as well as life. We are the walking wounded, but we're wounded warriors. We're the walking wounded, but we're wounded warriors. God never disqualified anybody because they felt too weak. In fact, there were often the moments that he called them and said, it's okay, because I'm strong. 
It's not about your strength, it's about the strength of him who lives in you. It's not about your power, it's about the power of the one that raised Jesus from the dead living in you. It's not about how you feel and whether you feel like worshiping, it's about pouring out worship because of him who lives in you, who sacrificed for you and still demands everything that you are and all that you have, even in the midst of suffering. Your weakness is your strength. It's that your, your death is your life. It's that weird kingdom tension and juxtaposition, but that helps me worship because you don't need to feel like it tonight and you can still declare that God is good because the presence of God lives in you. You still have unbelievable power to break chains, to see freedom, and you can also be a suffering servant exactly as you do it. You have unbelievable power because of Jesus living in you, but you yourself without him, we're just a clay pot, an empty jar that needs to be filled, or we've got nothing. The call to worship in this passage is a call of a Christian bleeding and beaten on their knees in prison, looking up, remembering Jesus lives, remembering he overcomes, he is on his throne, he is in eternity, and therefore we can stand and worship. We can celebrate when other areas of the church are doing a phenomenal job whilst ours is finding it really tough. We don't get too proud when the vineyard's exploding and we don't get too arrogant about it when our area of life seems to be going so well because we know another bit of the body is suffering and we worship together and we contend for each other because it's not about what we feel like, it's not about how good you are, it's about who lives in you, pouring it all out. Secondly, the vineyard has a phrase that loads of people have coined. It might have been that you nicked it, but I'm gonna say it's yours. The kingdom is now and not yet. And in the same way, I'd say justice is now and not yet because the kingdom will bring everything right. It will uh, bring justice. When Jesus finally gets to be king and makes all things sorted and all things right, there will be no more injustice. So we know the kingdom is coming and it has come. It is both in us and yet it is still to arrive. And when you look at this passage, you realize that's exactly what the early Christians are going through. Literally, Paul's like, I am currently dying and I celebrate that you are living. I am currently beaten and depressed and I celebrate that more and more people are worshiping God because they're meeting God. He is living in that tension right now. And we all live in that tension, don't we? We hear unbelievable stats, like I know you chatted to Ben earlier, like they can honestly declare in their offices on a regular basis, this is how many hundreds of people we just saw get free. So justice has come, the kingdom is coming. We see that poverty got halved over the last 20 years, extreme poverty, and um, chasing zero. You know, you get these guys, they literally, in our lifetime, we should see AIDS eradicated. You've got big vision and big justice movements doing big things. The kingdom is coming, it's here. And then it's not yet, isn't it? Because you're still walking past that homeless friend and you know their name and you have a chat and honestly, addiction is still biting and they just can't seem to shake it and you don't know what to do because you can't take them home to your student house but you're a bit lost as to what to do about that. And it's tough because just by living in this country and walking down our high street and wearing the clothes from the high street, we know that there's the blood of children on them because the fashion industry is so screwed up, sweatshops are everywhere, and we actually don't know what to do about that now. 
We know there's incredible waste going on. We know climate change is ravaging the poorest places that already were struggling. The kingdom is not yet. Justice is not fully here yet. You can see how you might walk with a limp, a wounded warrior, because it is hard and it isn't all made new. And yet, and yet we have a reason to lift our eyes. And yet we've got this audacious hope in us that we actually might be able to make a difference. We have this unbelievable faith that if we pray, something might get broken in the physical and in the spiritual. We honestly believe that there's more, that there is another way, that everything will be made new. That's why we share it, because this isn't enough. But we know the kingdom's coming. We know that justice is available and possible. But we're not there yet. A true understanding of the justice of God is again a reason why we can worship when we feel it and when we don't. When you're a victim of injustice and when it's just what you see around you. We can worship anyway because not only is the kingdom breaking in now, but you know Jesus will make it all right in the end. Jesus has won, is winning, will win. That means we can worship even if we don't feel like it or see it in our own context. Because he's on his throne and he is king and he comes back absolutely rocking it if you read Revelation. Reason to worship. And finally, the reason we can still worship is because of this eternal perspective. And this is really hard for our generation. We are so instant that we're barely present because we're so many, in so many different ways, we're trying to be present in other people's lives, we're not present in our own anyway. So the very idea of having an eternal perspective is a huge challenge in our culture. It will be offensive to your friends if you say that you are content and you have enough. Two of the most offensive things that you can say to our culture at the moment, I have enough, I have peace, and in God I am content. Extraordinary, extraordinary. Just flying against the spirit of the age which says you need a little bit more, you need a little bit less of that. Consume, consume, throw away what you don't want, move on to the next thing, climb the ladder, Compare yourself to everybody around you. Scroll the Facebook feed and notice how everyone is happier than you and then try and buy your way into more of that happiness. Comparison is robbing our joy. Our mental health in our generation is skyrocketing. Last year alone, York Uni had seven suicides. It hadn't been that many for the last 10 years. Our society is breaking us. We are breathing in a carbon monoxide that we can't even see that is robbing us of an eternal perspective and hope in Jesus because the instant isn't satisfying and yet that's all we've got. We seek what we want and what we feel like. We dispose what we don't need anymore. But we walk different because we're a different people from a different kingdom. We're wounded but we're warriors. We know justice is now and not yet and we have an eternal perspective. You see how Paul can walk through being beaten, bleeding, dying, because he says, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. A life of worship is a life that is postured towards eternity and then lives out the present with that in mind. That completely changes the way you love people, it completely changes the way you pray, where you put your money, where you put your time. It completely changes your level of hope and, and, and contentment, as well as giving you a hunger for more than you see. There should be an urgency that comes when you look at eternity, because you know it's coming, and you also know the friends that don't know about it yet, 
because we know where home is, but we have an open invite. An eternal perspective means that when we worship singing, stand up, arms up, eyes closed, sing out, if we were to go into that kind of worship, you actually are joining in with angels. You actually are entering in just a little glimpse of what it might sound like because we have an eternal perspective. And that means, yes, you can walk broken and bleeding and you can still walk and you can still have hope and you can still stand and worship even on the day you just don't feel like it. It's a choice, that's what I'm learning. The presence of God in me, the overflow of him, means that it should spill out into every area of my life. But I can be um, open and invitational about that, or I can build up walls and I can worship on a Sunday in a set environment, safely amongst Christians, and then live like everyone else on a Monday to blend in. The Spirit of God is in us, but it's up to you to give him permission to flow all the way through you and out of you. It means that on the difficult days, when your parents break up, when your mate gets cancer, when you uh, fail all your exams and you actually don't know how to tell anyone, when you literally don't know what to do when you graduate, when marriage is really hard, when uh, the kid thing is really tough, when career, you get promised all these dreams and honestly, you can come up with a first and still not get a job anywhere. In those moments, that's when it kicks in. Are you gonna feel entitled or are you gonna fight for other people's justice? Are you gonna stand up for the poor even though you feel bad because you're gonna take your eyes off you and speak up for the ones Jesus says I'm close to, I love them, will you do that for me? Will you worship when you feel like it or will you worship because you know in eternity every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, he is King, he has won, is winning, will win and I will choose to worship him on the difficult days and on the brilliant days, on the days of total confusion and on the days of being crystal clear with vision. We're jars of clay, but isn't it extraordinary that God would put his treasure in us? Isn't it extraordinary that he would choose to put his power rooted and embodied in the body of Christ, us, and then say, Go pour out your life in worship to me. Because the Spirit, the Sovereign Lord is on you, you are good news to the poor. You will see prisoners get free. You will see captives released. This is the day of the Lord's favor. And you carry my treasure to walk that out. I really pray that as we do some sung worship in a minute, some of you won't be feeling it, guaranteed. I pray that the Holy Spirit gives you an eternal perspective and you choose to stand anyway. Some of you will feel like the victims of injustice or feel so overwhelmed by some of the stuff you've heard going on in the world, you feel actually disempowered. I pray that the power of God would remind you of him who lives in you. It's not your job to save the world. Jesus already did that, but oh my goodness, you get to be a door holder to his spirit and his way. I love to pray for us all now. But I'm gonna read the end of that amazing scripture again. I pray that that is your touchstone. I pray that that is your go-to in some of the storms. And I pray that helps you live a life of justice and worship in any context, in any season, and way past our 20s. Listen to the words of Paul and let's receive them as a prayer over us.
Jesus, I pray that us lot, this generation, your kids, the Vineyard family, I pray that we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So Jesus, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Father, give us your perspective so we might be a people that live a life of worship and justice. Holy Spirit, help us live like eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.